So why do we have a pope? Well, simply put, we have a pope because Jesus set it up that way. Jesus set up the papacy, which is the office of the pope, to lead the Catholic Church with authority throughout the centuries. Now, people might ask then, of course, is the Pope in the Bible? And the truth is that not everything has to be in the Bible, but that's another uh, homily entirely. But the Pope, yes, is in the Bible. We just heard one clear example, though it's not the only one, that illustrates for us that Jesus Christ picked St. Peter as the first Pope and then delegated to him real authority to govern the church. We'll dig into that, but uh, first, let's back up a bit to our first reading and the story of Shebna and Eliakim. In the days of the prophet Isaiah, so this is around like 700 BC, the king of Judah appointed a man named Shebna to govern the affairs of his palace, to be the master of the palace. This office was established centuries before by King Solomon, and while Shebna was not royalty, he was put in charge of running the royal palace. There was a problem, though. Shebna, he started to take to himself some of the privileges that were really reserved to the king. In particular, he had a tomb cut into the rock for himself in an area that was reserved for tombs of the royal sons of David. So he started acting a little bit like a king when he was really just a steward. Now this upset the Lord, who then, speaking to Shebna, promised, I will thrust you from your office. I will summon Eliakim, clothe him with your robe, give over to him your authority. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on Eliakim's shoulder. When he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open. The office of master of the palace, of royal steward, of overseeing the affairs of the palace, was taken away from Shebna and given to Eliakim. Now, it's an interesting story, but... What I want you to notice is how this office of steward is being described here. There are at least three things I want to mention. First, notice it's an office. When Shebna was kicked out of it for his abuse of power, the office passed on to another. It endured. And notice, too, that not every office holder was holy and good, even if the office itself was. And notice that there's a succession of officers. Next, notice the office of steward had authority. A key worn on the shoulder of the steward signified his authority to open and close the doors to the palace, limiting or granting access to the king. In the kingdom, he was second in command only after the king himself. And finally, Notice, the holder of the office was to be like a father to the people. The office of steward, uh, important as it was for the early kings of Judah, fell away from use for centuries, but God apparently never forgot this. Fast forward then 
to the days of Judah, excuse me, to the days of Jesus. Uh, He is described over and over again in Scripture as the new king of the Jews. He is the one with authority over God's kingdom. He is the king. And he, as we just heard, chose to delegate some of that authority to a steward, a master of the palace. Jesus said, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The disciples and the other Jews of the day would probably have remembered God's words to in Isaiah, and understood what Jesus was doing here. He's bringing back this office of steward, not in the earthly kingdom of Judah, but in the church that Jesus here explicitly says he is building. Just as it was in the kingdom of Judah centuries before, so it would be in the Catholic church that Jesus was building. There is an office that is passed from one man to another, so it endures over time. There has been a succession of popes through the centuries. Notice again that even if most popes are good and holy, not everyone has been, even if the office itself is holy, because of the one who established it. So there is an office in the church, the papacy, that passes from one man to another, so it can endure over time. And secondly, like the office of steward in the old kingdom, the office of papacy has real authority, the symbol of which are keys, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The popes thus have real authority to forgive sins and to make decisions in matters of faith and morals that are binding upon us, the faithful. And finally, the holder of this office in the church is called the pope, a word which simply means father. We call the Pope the Holy Father. And the holder of that office is meant to be like a spiritual father to all the faithful. Hopefully, he is. The Catholic Church has always understood and taught the fact that Jesus intended there to be a real hierarchical organization that we could recognize in the world. We could find it. We shouldn't have to wonder, is it here? Is it there? Um, We should be able to recognize the church in the world. He didn't intend Christianity to be a vague collection of ideas or denominations that disagree or conflict with one another about everything except the fact that maybe Jesus is God. No, Jesus wanted us to have a visible, rock-solid church in the world with a real human hierarchical structure to carry on his authority the authority which he gave to Peter. Uh, For example, we know that Peter passed his authority on to, or the apostles passed that on to the second pope, Linus, who then passed it on to Cletus, the third pope, who passed it on to Clement, the fourth pope, and so on. You might recognize the names. Uh, Those are the names we hear in the first Eucharistic prayer, which I sometimes use at the altar. That authority has been passed all the way down through the centuries to Pope Francis, the 265th 
successor of St. Peter. And this is a huge blessing for us because it means that Jesus' authority to forgive sins and to resolve moral questions, it's still with us in the Pope and in the bishops of the church, along with their deputies and co-workers, us Catholic priests. Now, to make this a little more concrete, what does this mean for us Catholics now? Well, it means a lot of things, but here's a few thoughts. First, it means that when the church, under the leadership of the Pope and bishops, when it makes a solemn declaration and decision of matter, in a matter of faith and morals, we're obliged to obey. And if we don't, we're disobeying God's deputies, the ones he has given authority. I mean, whatever the issue, whatever issue you want to talk about, um, there's many controversial issues in the church, a lot of things that the faithful, uh, well, <laughs> a lot of things Catholics and non-Catholics alike want to question or dis- teachings they want to ignore or discard. But the thing is, if we disobey the church's clear teaching on matters of faith and morals, we're disobeying Jesus Christ himself. And there are consequences. If not in this life, well, then in the next. And second, this also means that we need to, or really, we, we have the great privilege of getting to go to confession. Confession is such an awesome gift that Jesus has given us. Jesus gave the power to forgive sins to Peter and the apostles who pass it down through the centuries through our bishops down to us priests. And if you know that fact and then you refuse to go to confession and receive God's forgiveness there for things that um, could be mortally sinful, you are receiving, excuse me, you are refusing to receive God's forgiveness. And then if you don't ever receive God's forgiveness, you might not find yourself in heaven in the end. For Catholics who know better, confession is not optional for salvation. We needed it. It's just not optional. It's why the church made it a rule um, that we got to go to confession at least once a year. But boy, I tell you, I'd say if we're honest with ourselves, we could all use it at least every month. It is a great gift. Uh, as Jesus reportedly said to St. Faustina, he who refuses to pass through the door of my mercy, the door of the confessional, perhaps, must pass through the door of my justice which is a frightening idea indeed. So we got to go to confession. We get to go to confession. And finally, a third thought. This, this whole notion of authority and, and the papacy is it's why we must never leave the Catholic Church. And it's also why we should invite others to join us in this church and pray for those who have left this church. Because the Catholic Church was... It was the only church around for the first thousand years after Jesus' resurrection. You know, there were little groups that would split off, but they would quickly die. Only when later on, when the Orthodox came around, and Protestant, and Evangelical, and all these other groups, that all these groups founded by men came about. The Catholic Church is the church Jesus founded on the rock of St. Peter. Um, the one that will not, Jesus promised, be overcome by the devil. It's the one 
with authority to bring God's mercy and presence to us through the sacraments. Now, of course, yes, this is a holy church, but it has sinners in it. Uh, But the Catholic Church is holy. It is a holy church. Why? Because of its founder, Jesus Christ, not because the sinners. Um, It's great to be members of the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. uh, And let us strive to always remain so. Amen.